You're listening to the November 12th, 2014 edition of The Close-Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's weekly podcast series. This is Brian Brooks. And this is Eugene Hernandez. You can now find The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. Please let us know what you think by leaving a comment. We also invite your comments and questions on Twitter. Follow us at Filmlink, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C. So on this edition of The Close-Up, we are featuring filmmaker Bennett Miller on the occasion of the opening of his new film, Foxcatcher. Bennett joined New York Film Festival director Kent Jones for a lively conversation about his filmmaking career as part of our HBO Director's Dialogue series during this year's festival. Bennett's first movie was actually a documentary. It was the 1998 film The Cruise. And Eugene, you and I first met him at the Los Angeles Film Festival where the film debuted. Yeah, we were really um, we were really kind of taken with the movie and its approach. It's a very intimate, personal look at this New York City tour guide, Timothy Speed Levitch. He's a really distinctive individual character with a very unique and distinctive voice. And I think it might surprise people to hear that Bennett Miller, this filmmaker who's known for making a very quiet, contemplative narrative films that explore... Uh, personalities um, actually started his career in documentary. Yeah. But, you know, in a way, the documentary was a bit of a precursor to his to his later narrative work. Speed Levitch um, is a big personality in his own right. He was a tour guide on one of the infamous buses that circle around Manhattan. But he was so much bigger than that. His knowledge of New York was just amazing. But it is definitely a precursor to his narrative work and segue into the spirit of big personalities that he's dived into in his later work. And so the much-heralded 2005 feature Capote, which screened at the New York Film Festival that year, was nominated for three Oscars. That was his follow-up. It took him many years to uh, put that film together. It starred Philip Seymour Hoffman, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, who was a close friend of Bennett's. They grew up together. Uh, That film uh, was nominated for three Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director. Um, And obviously, Hoffman won the Academy Award for Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role, portraying legendary author Truman Capote. Bennett's next feature was 2011's Moneyball, starring Brad Pitt, Robin Wright, and Jonah Hill. And that film received a half a dozen Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. This year, he debuted his latest big screen feature, Foxcatcher, which screened at the 52nd New York Film Festival in October. Based on a true story, Foxcatcher is about an unlikely relationship between an Olympic gold medalist and the heir to one of America's biggest fortunes. In the film, wrestler Mark Schultz receives a call from John DuPont, who offers to sponsor the Olympian in the lead-up to the 1988 Games in Seoul, South Korea. John DuPont sees Mark and his accomplished wrestling brother Dave as a way for him to carry on the winning legacy of the DuPont family, and Mark looks at him as a bit of a fatherly figure. Their relationship is driven by the excesses of the DuPont family and their wealth, but it also features tremendous emotional upheaval, and the story plays out like a bit of a high-society thriller. Steve Carell stars as John DuPont, while Channing Tatum plays Mark Schultz, and Mark Ruffalo plays his brother Dave Schultz. The film also features a very regal Vanessa Redgrave. Foxcatcher opens this weekend and will continue to roll out throughout the fall. Um, now let's listen into the conversation between Bennett Miller and Kent Jones from the 52nd New York Film Festival. 
I'm just going to start off with some acknowledgments uh, without my glasses. Uh, yeah. I'd like to thank the Royal Bank of Canada, Jaeger Lacoutre, American Airlines, the New York Times, HBO, who's sponsoring this talk and our other director's dialogues and then our year-round talks in the amphitheater. Stella Artois, The Hollywood Reporter, Variety, Trump International Hotel and Tower, The Road, New York City, and we'd also like to thank the New York State Council of the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts, and our members and patrons. So, thank you for coming. And I guess I want to talk about your very, very special approach, what I see as your very special approach to making movies and because what I see is someone who goes very deep into character and atmosphere, and you let the places and the mannerisms and the gestures do a lot of the talking. It's a really unique experience. Um, and I'm wondering if that sounds right to you, and then if you could address it on your own from your own perspective. Um, I, I think that those things are like the byproduct of a process and maybe in the category of style. But if I'm working on something, it never feels like, oh, I'm going to bust out some silences or, yeah. you know, you know what would be nice here is just that little tick. Yeah. But there's always something happening in pretty much every moment in every scene of everything mm -hmm. I feel like I've ever worked on mm -hmm. long form that is not being expressed or acknowledged. Something's being expressed inadvertently. Mm. You know, there's the scene, and then there's something happening underneath it. Yeah. And hopefully if things are working, there's a dynamic mm -hmm. that lets you clock both things at the same time. Yeah. You know, how we're intentionally expressing ourselves and the thing that happens beneath the surface. And just personally, I, I find in interpersonal relationships and in public uh, relationship, you know, like a political campaign, how we're communicated to, yeah. that, you know, what is actually said and what is literally said mm. um, is often at profound odds with what else is being communicated yeah. and so I think just naturally working on a scene and getting into the edit and seeing what the actors are doing it, it tends to make um, some kind of space to sensitize you to these things and, and then I think you get what you're talking about yeah because it's in one sense um, it's the question of subtext and subtext, you know. But then in your films, I feel like that it's it runs much deeper than that in the sense that you're so attentive to uh, what we call the subtext mm -hmm. that it winds up being the it's often the you know the focus of the yeah. scene. Yeah. Um. I uh, yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess that that begs the question, where do you begin with actors in your exploration of character? I mean, I'm sure that it's very different with every actor. Mm -hmm. And I know you had, you know, um, you have 
special relationships with different actors, but how does, I mean, let's start with casting, for instance. Where does that, is, what, what is it that, for instance, to take a very specific example, sparked you um, with Philip Seymour Hoffman with Capote? I think of all of the disciplines within filmmaking, casting is probably the most um, misunderstood and underappreciated discipline, you know, art form within itself. Because character, I think, is story. In, in the case of Phil, um, I had known him and we were friends. And when I first presented him with the script, uh, he said, um, you know, he read it and he said, hey, why don't, you, why don't you come over? And we went onto his balcony when he was living on Sheridan Square. And uh, he was really turned on by the, you know, the story, the character. But he said, Right now, I weigh 240 pounds, and I'm like 5'10", something like that. And uh, it just seems possibly ridiculous and reckless. And I'm trying to think back to what um, the difference between me now and then is, because I don't think I would make a decision like that. It just seems so out there, like taking a shot from half court. Uh, the the hoops that he had to jump through to make that work physically uh, and with his voice were so profound. But um, the, for example, the issue of being short, because he was more than half of a foot taller than Truman Capote. And we would you know, say, well, what, what does that really matter? You know, why is that? Why is his Capote's height important? It's you know, it's really about the complex, that that, how the complex might have contributed to, um, who he was, and uh, it's easy for me to cast very very tall people, you know, and put them around and to, you know, wardrobe him in a way that like might. Um, keep his shoulders tight so his head appears bigger, you know, like a smaller person. But understanding the complexes and, uh, you know, the more we talked about it and the more naturally he just had his divining rod into, like, who he was and what that struggle was all about and how much, to be, to be honest, he identified with him and how much he identified with him at that moment in his career that where Capote was in his life and where Phil was in his life, meaning both of these guys were um, recognized and appreciated as you know, major talents, but had, had yet to land the big one. And uh, you know, the more you get into that conversation, uh, the more the physical obstacles just become insignificant, you know? And you say, well, that's, that's my problem. Like, we'll figure out a way to, to deal with that aspect of it. But once we're plugged into, you know, the inner stuff, you know, you feel a kind of confidence. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting because it makes me. I'm thinking of a film by someone else, True Confessions, Bayou Grossbard, where Robert De Niro and uh, Robert Duvall play brothers. I mean, those two guys look like they're from different planets. But in the movie, you know, it makes perfect sense. And it's because they're both on the same same inner wavelength. Yeah. 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 It's um, amazing how much you will forgive if the behavior is truthful. Or not look at. You, yeah. It just becomes beside the point, right? Yeah. Um, I wanted to, to look at a, a different subject. You had said in an interview, I mean, you... All of the films that you've made are, are based on actual events. Um, and you began in documentary, with a, with a documentary. Well, you began with a documentary. Um, I wonder about, I'm, I have the impression that the transition was really seamless for you, and I'm wondering for you what, what the dividing line is between documentary and fiction. Mm. <coughs> I mean, on a personal level, not on yeah. It, it it really feels the same. Working on a documentary or working on a narrative feature fundamentally feels the same to me. And the cruise, which is my first film, I mean, it, it employs a lot of narrative techniques and you know observes. It's not so much documentary as it is a documentary portrait. And I think all of my films have been portraits. And um, and my narratives incorporate, you know, documentary technique too. You know, when you're when you're actually looking through the eyepiece and through the lens of a camera as you're shooting a documentary, and there's that coincidence that occurs of a character unfolding and light and composition and you know whatever's happening in this, you know, with the sound. There's a coincidence that happens that you could not fabricate and it's electric you know it's it's magic and you just don't you know you just there's that, that feeling and um, it should feel that way I think for me it, it should feel that way too when you're working on a film and as much preparation as you do on a fiction film on a fiction yeah. film yeah and as much preparation as you do and as much as you might understand it or or think you understand it when you get there if it if it's been preconceived uh too well um it it doesn't work and it's nice to mix it up and keep the actors on their heels and do what it, whatever it takes to kind of get to that feeling so that when you when it happens you're shooting something that is happening and it's alive and it's not going to happen again you know it, ideally so when you say preconceived I, I guess I assume what you mean is scripted storyboarded everything you know locked down what you're doing is just realizing a, a plan yeah, I mean, so far for the style of, you know, the style that's been used in the films I've made so yes. far, that's that's well, very much what they're about. Yeah, yeah. Um, you really, what it is is you want to look for yourself to be surprised and for the actors to be surprising themselves. I mean, I'm I'm looking for the moment of discovery. You know, when something actually occurs yeah. 
for the first time yeah. and it will only ever occur for the first time. So we might rehearse, but I, I tend not to rehearse to the point where we find it. We, I like to f rehearse to the point where we're in the ballpark mm -hmm. and expect that we're only going to get one proper take, mm -hmm. more or less. Mm -hmm. well, that's interesting. I mean, do you find yourself confronted with situations where there are multiple takes that give you different, you know, all the a, time, a bounty of, yeah, all the okay. time? Yeah. Right. No, I mean, yeah. that's why I'm saying that's yeah. the idea. How often does it happen like that? Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes. Yeah, it, because you also have the problem of actors who are good on the first take, acting with someone who's not good until they've warmed up a few times. Um, I know that that's a tough one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to be naming names. But what is the difference then between mining for truth when you're making a documentary or for that moment? and doing it with a fiction film? Hmm. You're asking really hard questions, Kent. I'm sorry, Bennett. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, again, it's that, it's that feeling you know when something is being revealed. And, um, In the case of Foxcatcher, which I imagine not many people have seen. Yeah, yet. actually, is there a show of hands that we could do? Have, has anyone seen Foxcatcher? So we'll know very what we difficult Ooh. to see it. Oh, yeah. So we'll know what we can talk about and can't talk about. One person. I'm going to direct this answer yeah. to you. <laughs> <laughs> if everybody could just cover their ears because they're spoilers. <laughs> um, well, in, in the case of Foxcatcher should any of you choose to see it. <laughs> <coughs> this is a story, uh, it's a tr based on a true story of which everybody who was around that I reached out to pretty much was eager to participate and, and share. But pretty much everybody was guarding some aspect of the story, mm. which is really intriguing when that happens. Mm. And over the course of years, I would keep going back to people and re-interviewing and re-interviewing and find out, you know, what happened, what happened. And often it's just backstory. Yeah. It's to understand really what's going on in these characters, even if it's never made explicit. And there's a, a lot of curious things that happen in this story that it's hard to fathom, you know, even though they tell you, well, this happened, this happened, this happened, and we know that these are facts. Yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> a very, very wealthy man got wrestlers to move on to his estate to train for the Olympics. Yeah. It stays here. <laughs> and over time, uh, he descended into a dangerous person yeah. and exhibited all sorts of signs of instability and even madness. And a love 
four guns of all type. <laughs> Big ones and small ones, yeah. And drugs. Um, and wrestlers. And wrestlers. And um, the question that came of uh, why did you stay and did you think you were in danger? Or why, if he was like this, didn't you get this person help? And there was always this response, well, you don't understand. No, 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 no. It's not like that. Well, it's exactly like that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he was, you know, drug-addled, uh, mentally ill person with an enormous arsenal, and, uh, he, and he would do very funny things with his guns. And um, understanding, really, for these characters, for, for Mark Ruffalo <coughs> and for Channing Tatum, like how did things get to the point where you were doing this and accepting that and looking the other way and, and learning what that is? We sort of stick a pin in the scene. Like we know this scene happened, we know this thing happened, and we would get there on the day, and we would we would work it, and usually we would discover something. And you go, ah, oh, that's what that's like. Spoiler alert: there's some drugs done <laughs> by um, yeah. Channing Tatum's character. Yeah, don't and do them at home. And yeah. Uh, yeah, do not try that at home. Don't do drugs. With very wealthy people. Yep. <laughs> but there's this question of like, how the hell did it, does it get there? Like, you're training for the Olympics, and now you're flying around in a helicopter, um, and this guy offers you cocaine, and without much hesitation, you say, sure. And that begins the whole thing. And this is who you think you are, and yet this is what you're doing, and how do you understand that? A lot of these things uh, really are not understood until we're like in the process of doing it and exploring around, and when, when all of a sudden you were shooting in the helicopter and Steve Carell does something that surprises him mm. and it just makes sense, you know, you, you recognize it, you go, oh, oh, that's what that was. Yeah. Um. When I think of the a Foxcatcher in particular, when I think of your films in general, and Foxcatcher in particular, I'm think, thinking of your, it's the, the pursuit of what is um, familiar yet strange, mm -hmm. is the way that it feels to me. Yeah. Um, familiar yet strange. Yeah. I mean, this this was a story, and I would say the same for Capote, and I'd say the same for Moneyball, Moneyball too. Yeah that um, personally I've got no identification with like the details of these stories, that I've never lived anything like these stories. And uh, in particular, Foxcatcher, it, it just seems so, I mean, it's, it's really an absurdist story. Like the fa it has the foundation for an absurdist comedy. Yeah, well there's, that's part of the movie, yeah. in a way, yeah. spoiler. You're giving the whole thing away. Yeah. Ken. Oh well. It's get, it's well good night, everybody. An empty theater tomorrow. Yeah. Friday. Yeah. Friday. Friday. Yeah. But um, you know, it's just a very weird situation. 
these wrestlers, you know, rich guy. And yet it did, it just felt familiar. Yeah. And, you know, something to do with just these themes of wealth and class and entitlement and um, people who have no business, you know, embarking on an, on a venture with each other, understanding for a moment, you know, that they fit, like what is, like the, the weird transaction and it just feels it just feels kind of familiar to me, mm-hmm. you know. It feels kind of American to me. Yeah, Ameri- on, on every level, because it's also the tactility of that film. I, I mean, I'm, you know, when I was um, in the film, what you have and what you have in, in, in all of Bennett's films is the meeting ground between people from very different kinds of mm-hmm. worlds, just kind of coming together and probably uh, uh, suddenly just sort of thrown together. And so um, Channing Tatum's character, who just doesn't have two nickels to rub together and lives like in the kind of, you know, house that, that I remember from, you know, my childhood, you know, I d- and, and then arriving in the middle of this strange terrarium-like um, existence that, uh, in, that Steve Carell inhabits um, in the middle of right near Valley Forge and you know and all of the all of its associations with the American past and then it's also um, you're looking at this wild recreation of 80s America and I would imagine that 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 it feels like that's something that really got you excited the upholstery the the VHS tapes and the strange homemade you know movies about uh, Fox Catch I don't know that stuff is all, all really comes alive you know when something yes and the appeal of all of that stuff um for me was was instantaneous like it all it really did happen in a big flash mm-hmm. you know i read a, a newspaper article that a stranger had handed me in a store and said you're going to want to make a movie out of this story that happened mm-hmm. and uh i said okay just back off um you know a month later i opened the envelope and um it it all came crashing in very very quickly like oh my god i'm gonna do this and uh the appeal of everything that you just described is is really instantaneous and something that you don't even want to think about too much you just like yep 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 how do i get the rights how do i get the rights but yes just the you know what's in a tracksuit, and then the upholstery of, <laughs> yeah, and these horses and mm-hmm. uh, these wrestlers and these wrestling mats in the '80s, like denim jackets and the, and just like the whole soup of it. Yeah, and also that weird morning in America, Reagan era yeah. feeling. Um, yeah, I mean you're right back there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I, you know, without. Um, dwelling too much, giving away any more spoilers, you know, but I do want to talk about a particular scene in the movie, which when you see it, um, it's going to, you know, strike you immediately. And that's the first meeting between Channing Tatum and his brother, played by Mark Ruffalo, um, who are both wrestlers uh, in the film, and um, Bob and Mark Schultz. And they're 
training together, um, sparring together, and the scene is just absolutely mesmerizing. I mean, those guys look like, you know, it's not just that they look like real wrestlers. It's that it looks like they know every single move, and every yeah. single move translates into a kind of a, um, immediately you can feel the um, the sibling dynamic yeah. between the two of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an these amazing way to these introduce these, that. These, these guys, these, these two actors, uh, Channing and Mark Ruffalo, um, just really took it upon themselves to learn each other, these parts, the world. And they started training wrestling maybe seven months out and spending time with each other and spending time with the real people and I, I don't know if I have words for this but I don't know I mean I've, I have such a feeling for these actors uh, it, it, it part of the reason why I, I like making films and part of the reason why an event like this is is, is not always the best idea is because um, you it's know working out fine so far I'm not I'm not I'm not <laughs> I, I live in that, in filmmaking, in that place where words do escape me. Yeah. You know? It's just a question of immersion. It's, it's just a question of a different language. Yeah. It's just a different language. Uh, and I've never thought of myself as a very articulate person. And when we were sketching out um, the outline and drafting drafts of um, over years, uh, of this film, mm -hmm. the first act um, saw many scenes that were designed simply to establish who these brothers were and who they were to each other yeah. and what they wanted and what was in the way of them getting what they wanted and what were they doing to overcome that and um, what was their predicament. Uh, and to un and to ex make explicit the dynamics between them, the reverence and the rivalry. Yeah. And um, we shot the scene that you're describing, which is two brothers who are each other's wrestling partners, and they kind of warm each other up, and then they do light training. And in this case, it, it gets a little competitive, and they go live, and then it gets a little rough. And uh, what you learn without words and how they do this allowed me to eliminate 20 minutes of scenes from the first act yeah. because you just knew everything. Yeah. You learned everything. Yeah. And it's... it's yeah, every gesture counts. Every movement counts. It's, it's the way that, you know, Mark Schultz, you know, Channing Tatum's character sort of repels everybody. And then when you see his brother, Dave Schultz, played by Mark Ruffalo, mm -hmm. when you see how he just breaks those barriers and his like warmth and affection and he brings him in, just like cutting room floor, cutting room floor, just eliminate, <laughs> eliminate, eliminate. It just, yeah. it does everything. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just, it's in, a, it's in a gesture and it's, it's in a moment. Mm -hmm. And um, incredible performances, mm -hmm. I, to my taste. Yeah, and then a very different kind of performance from Steve Carell. What? What? I mean, the character of John E. for Eagle Dupont. 
um, <laughs> is just you know um, casting. That, that's a, that's a whole other level of you know having a casting problem, and so it's an incredible performance. And what what brought you to Steve Carell? Spoiler alert. Um, this the character that he plays um, does some horrible things, and he does uh, some <laughs> unexpected things, and I, I wanted to cast somebody um, who would be unexpected but could pull it off. And it seemed like it needed to be somebody that defies our imagination of who this person can be. By the way, uh, he disappears. I mean, you do not you don't see Steve Carell in the in the role. He's he's just not there. But he said to me when we were first discussing this, he says, "I've you know I've only ever played characters with mushy centers." And John DuPont does not have a mushy center, though he seems to for almost all of the film. But in truth, there's something very sharp and dangerous uh, inside there. And I'll use the word dark. It fits. Yeah. And um, so the soft, you know, mushy, center part the awkwardness the uncomfortable in your own skin and and all like that mm. check 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 yep. uh, and this other bit um you know the darkness and the sharpness uh the guy is a comedian you know which is to say he's messed up <laughs> you know <laughs> i'm joking i mean a little bit he's if, if you talk to anybody, everybody will say the same thing. Oh, Steve Carell, he's the nicest guy. He's the, nice, he's, he's the greatest guy to work with. He's, he's the best guy. He's such a great dad. He's such a great you know, father. <laughs> just, yeah. Oh, my kids go to school with you know, his kids, and he's just such a great guy. And all of that's true, and mm -hmm. he is the greatest guy to work with. And he is an incredibly benevolent uh, soul. But I, I really do believe that part of being a comic means that there is an aspect of you that you just don't reveal yeah. to the world like ever if you can help it yeah. uh, ultimately you know it's 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 hard to conceal who you are uh, for a lifetime yeah. darkness and comedy really do it's go hand they, in hand they go hand in hand don't have to look far for many many examples but in Carell's case, I just, I don't think he ever had an, an aversion to going there, but I don't think there, there was ever um, an opportunity yeah. for him to demonstrate, you know, his um, latitude as an actor. Yeah. And from the beginning, he talked about this as something that was going to be different for him yeah. in every way. And the solemnity of the story that was really brought into stark relief 
by the presence of the family of the man he murdered mm -hmm. on set uh, and the brother of the man he murdered and dozens of uh, people who were close to the story. Um, I, th I think only fortified like his original commitment that this was not going to be uh you know a silly thing yeah um and uh we're just going to play the movie for you right now yeah here we go <laughs> i wish you all had seen it but um yeah i i, I hope you do I believe that Sony Pictures Classics will be opening this film when? What's the opening date? When? November fourteenth. There we go. So, can I can I just give a shout out to Michael Barker? Yeah, there he is from Sony Classics. <laughs> this is we did um, we did Capote together, and we're doing this film, and um, Michael and his. Um, partner over at Sony, Tom Bernard, have been doing this for 35 years. Mm -hmm. And last year, they, there was a, they were honored at the American Museum of the Moving Image. It's so much easier to not talk about yourself. Okay. <laughs> and before, you know, speeches and stuff were made, they had assembled a, a scroll of every film that these guys released. <laughs> and I cried. It's an honor roll. Yep. I could mm. not believe it and uh it was <laughs> and another thing about Michael yeah, Barker he's not many people know this but <laughs> when he was 9 years old he, he saw Grand Illusion. <laughs> <laughs> um well when you were 9 years old were you watching movies? Were you drawn to movies when you were very young? Yeah, I, wa I, I was, uh, and I, I definitely have moments in my life where I discovered a film, um, and it, the language of the film itself spoke to me mm -hmm. in a way where, as as if someone came up to you and started speaking a, a language you've never heard but you understood and it was able to express things mm. that uh, the language you knew could not and amongst these films were um, Pawnbroker mm -hmm. um, the uh, PBS when I was about 13 years old um, I don't know why I was watching it, but Salesman by the Maisels yeah. came on. Yes. Um, it's quite a film. Incredible. Both, mm. both of these films, yeah. uh, you know, maybe back to the, the whole quiet thing. It, Salesman, I remember, the, you know, the way it opens up. I'd never seen a documentary like this. I'd never seen anything by the Maisels. I didn't know who they were or what I was looking at. Mm. But, you know, it begins with, you know, a Bible salesman, it's 1966, black and white, and we follow this guy like into a house, and having watched a lot of TV, there's a, just a natural sense, like an expectation about 
an explanation is coming, you know, either a voiceover or something was going to occur to explain what we were looking at. And when that did not happen, I remember just leaning in and realizing that it wasn't going to explain it Mm. because it was all right there. Mm. But somehow in the film itself, you felt the presence, you know, you felt the consciousness of the film. I felt like I was inside somebody's head. This is how I felt about Kubrick's films too. Mm. Remember seeing the birds also when I was young and feeling that way too. Mm. I mean, part of what's so eerie about that film is is the mind of that film itself. You know, the way it it doesn't it's tell not. a story. It obs- the way it observes a story yeah. and who's like, what is this mind? I'm trapped inside observing this yeah. thing. It's so disconcerting. <coughs> the story kind of comes together in a very odd way. It's ex- an extremely unorthodox piece of work, yeah. right? Um, and also a film that has its own sense of quiet, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and leaves you without um, conclusions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I believe it was actually meant to end differently. Mm. Um, and he reinvented the ending on the spot. Um, that was the first time that he had done that in that movie. He invented a lot of stuff. Just, you know, he showed up on the set and said, okay, this is no good. Threw it out and reworked it. That's amazing. As much as it is controlled and preconceived that he'd still be on his feet like that. Yeah. Um, I think he was at a moment in his career when he was very worried about how the public, what the public thought of him. He had made Psycho. He wanted to, you know, try and top it and he wanted to try and be with it. Right. Um, yeah. So salesman and which Kubrick films were? Um, I, I saw at a very early age, at too early of an age, <laughs> um, by a lot. I I saw two thousand one, mm. uh, and that was pretty searing. Mm. And watching uh, somebody age and in an accelerated way and seeing themselves in a very, you know, confusing end, which made a lot more sense to me has made less sense to me each time I've seen the film. But Mm -hmm. when I, when I was like very young and saw it, it it made perfect sense. Uh, I mean, I got the message and wasn't happy about it. (laughs) 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 Um, We had a copy of Clockwork Orange yeah. in our house, a VHS. Mm. Uh, or I should say, um, we had all but the last like four minutes. Oh. And um, How did that work? <laughs> well, uh, my, my, my brother, we had, we had a VCR and yeah. we also had you know, a video camera with, we had a video camera, a separate video camera. Yeah. Back in those days, you had a port-a-pack. Right. And my, uh, I, I guess my father must have rented that film, mm-hmm. and my brother set up the camera on a tripod and pointed it at the television, <laughs> and the tape, you know, ran out, you know, <laughs> right before the end, uh, and without exaggeration, I, I think I saw that film at least a hundred times, yeah. at least in that crappy quality. And I never saw the end until I moved to New York and until it was playing at Cinema Village. Yeah, yeah. 
Which and is boy, that changes things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I, I remember watching that film again and again and thinking that the place to be was behind the camera. Mm-hmm. You know, noticing the shots, noticing, um, noticing how he worked. You know, mm-hmm. when I was. 15 years old, I had um, an English class that I would ultimately fail mm-hmm. as a freshman in high school, taught by a fella by the name of Mr. <laughs> O'Rourke, who was very nice, and We're I don't begrudge him it. for you know, failing me. <laughs> okay. Okay. But um, he hatched some kind of a plan that we were going to have, uh, we were all going to have like walkabout projects, like we were all going to go off on our own and figure out how to do something. And he he got a 16 millimeter print of Walkabout by Nicholas Rogue. Oh. And he projected it um, in our, in the theater, you know, it, like the, the stage theater we had at our high school. And um, I had had the feeling, you know, beginning around age 12 or 13 that making films is like, I mean, I was, I had, was lucky enough to have the wherewithal to like begin messing around with video cameras and Super 8, that this is, you know, would be a great thing, but nobody I knew even knew anybody that had anything to do with this business. Yeah. And I thought, how far-fetched is that ambition? Mm-hmm. But then I thought, well, you know, there are other 12-year-olds right now who one day will be making films, mm-hmm. and what do they know that I don't know? Right. And maybe it's possible. Yeah. You know, and probably not too far behind the curve. <laughs> and then I saw Walkabout. And it, A, blew me away. Mm-hmm. But B it seemed technically fathomable. I watched that film and there didn't seem to be anything in there that I didn't understand. There's no special effects, there's no crazy camera movement. It's it's utterly simple. It wasn't until I saw it again years later that I realized how impossibly sophisticated yeah, I was gonna <laughs> say. photography is. But <laughs> it, at least it seemed to me like, oh, this guy just got a couple of actors and a camera and just slept around and uh, you know, it's there's just nothing to it. It yeah. seemed from a technical perspective. <laughs> and at 15 years old, I thought, I can understand, you know, I could get there. Like, there's nothing here that is that's too um, mysterious. Yeah. And interestingly, uh, about. Um, 26 years later, mm-hmm. um, moments before the world premiere of my first narrative feature, which was Capote, Capote. at the mm-hmm. Telluride Film Festival, less than 24 hours after the film was completed, yeah. where the final <laughs> check print you know, came <coughs> back okay, um, there was some kind of an award being given to Criterion C- Collection. Yes. And mm-hmm. as part of that, they projected, you know, clips from the films that, you know, were within the collection. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, 
that iconic image of that you know aboriginal you know perched mm. backlit david Gopalil. yeah, yeah. He, you know massive on a massive screen all of a sudden just boom that image mm. from walkabout and you know from whatever 27 years prior that the that thought was as if it was like one second ago of oh i think i could do this mm. you know mm. i mean it was it was like right as if no time one of the most um crazy cosmic coincidences of my life kind of in keeping with nicholas rogue too with mm-hmm. the way that his movies work yeah right because time is just just collapses yeah yeah mm. so the distance between um wanting to make movies and picking up the camera for 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 the, for the first time um was that a i think it started with making movies and then realizing oh this is something that would be great to continue doing yeah. it, it wasn't even there wasn't even a th- thankful that i didn't have the curse of wanting to do something before i started doing it yeah. you know it was just one of those automatics like Oh my God! Here's the camera, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And right from the start, you've been, you've had a really unique fascination with illuminating kind of corners of American experience that really aren't touched in movies. Um, they're you know very particular kinds of interactions, particular kinds of unease pr- places. I'm wondering if you well i mean you know i guess i'm wondering if that's something that's um a conscious thing for you um can can you be more specific i mean that you know we had said before and you had agreed to the idea that you're making movies about people you know people crossing paths who are you know coming from extremely different worlds um different viewpoints but it's also you're looking at um, very unusual slices of American life. I mean, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the world of Foxcatcher, mm-hmm. you know, the strange world of Foxcatcher. So that's sort of like, um, I'm, I guess my question is, what is it in American experience uh-huh. that really draws um, you? I, maybe it's, I, I don't disagree, but I think it's more um, just a natural consequence because you know i'm an american and i live here yeah and um you know i'm i guess i'm curious about examining uh stuff that doesn't get acknowledged you know Uh, just i was reading um milan kundera or as he pronounces it kundera who knew? Um, <laughs> as his essays on the art of the novel, and he talks about the novel being a unique art form, a unique medium with which discoveries can be made, illuminations can be made, mm-hmm. and things can be expressed that are not possible through any other medium. Mm-hmm. And the novel, being you know what it is and has as at its um, core the requisite of discovery. It's, it needs 
to be, you know, it's about finding something new. Yeah. And um, what he says, these are kind of strong words, but, you know, any novel that does not manage to shine a light in a hitherto unknown yeah. place is uh, immoral mm-hmm. by, you know, the standards of what a novel is. Mm-hmm. And he tracks, you know, the history of the novel as one history, you know, beginning, you know, with Cervantes. Yes. I, I don't think it's any different with film or, or should be mm-hmm. any different with film. There's a whole category of film that's not about that and totally valid and legit. That's maybe more about entertainment and thrills and other things. Mm-hmm. But as a medium, uh, it's, you know, it's the greatest medium in the history of art, you know, because it incorporates every other medium. Mm-hmm. And it can just do things, you know, it's the, the capabilities are just profound. And um, I get sent scripts, you know, and, um, you know, f- I, I don't, feel like a compulsion to like work, 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 and like, you know, start the, you know, next thing as the other thing's winding down. Mm. But I do want to work, you know, and I want to keep, you know, making films so long as, you know, so long as they let me. (laughs) (laughs) But if there isn't something that I'm getting at that I've never seen before that feels like a discovery to me too, it's just hard to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And you know living in America th- there there's a hell of a lot to you know think about and look at and mm-hmm. you know I get this feeling that people will look back years from now at this point in history the way we look back at points of history and say you know what the hell yeah, were they the thinking like around. how yeah. could this be like what is that about? Mm-hmm how could you not get it together and how did this person come into power and what who backed that decision mm-hmm. you know this the the improbability you know the in a in a time of such profound um advancement in technology and science and as we're understanding the world better and better there is simultaneously a kind of decline happening yeah. i think uh, and a big part of it is uh, cultural. And uh, for for me, it's the the moment I live with a story long enough, it it always ends up, you know, I always end up kind of like looking away from you know the spectacular thing and kind of over here, and like what's going on in that corner because mm-hmm. that has more to do with like what's going to happen. And. Uh, really not not like a thought out strategy not a, like a decision <laughs> not a determination but not wanting to get caught up in uh the polemics you know in the politics or the or even taking sides or making a conclusion but mm-hmm. to try to look past uh the conflict to the core and down to the human level of, of what is contributing to this dynamic where madness happens yep. you know where tragedy can come from mm-hmm. in this ca- in the case of foxcatcher uh, and 
not ultimately conclude he was bad, he was you know good guy, bad guy, or, or anything like that, but mm-hmm. rather uh, just try to be unflinching about it and keep looking past. Yeah. Um, we just got the high five, but that's a perfect place to end. And I really thank you, Bennett. It's been thank great. you, thank you so much, Kent. Thanks. The Close-Up is produced by the Film Society of Lincoln Center, a member-supported nonprofit arts organization. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society works to recognize established and emerging filmmakers, support important new work, and enhance awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do, visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.